Good morning, Selwyn Avenue Presbyterian Church, and welcome to our Faith Lab podcast. My name is Margo. I'm Selwyn's director for youth and young adults, and I'm here with Pastor Lori Rabel. Um, in our Faith Lab podcast, we're working through a series that we're working for, through in worship right now. Um, we're calling it Letters to a New Church. And in this series, we're talking about Paul and the life of Paul and what Paul used to say to the new church, as we are, in a ways, a new church coming back together after some time apart. And so this morning, we'll be um, diving a little bit deeper into Romans 16. Thanks, Margo. So I'm just wondering. Uh, if you've ever really read Romans 16 as part of like a Bible study or ever preached Romans 16 before Margo? Never. <laughs> right. So I made it all the way through seminary and 10 years of ordained ministry and really ha- don't know much about this chapter in the book of Romans. The book of Romans is the, the most um, well-established, uh, b- profound, longest letter that Paul writes. And oftentimes, um, even though there's a lot of theological meat in this book, um, we just pass right by the last the last chapter of, of the book itself. Um, having said that, it it is a goldmine in terms of um, our understanding of what the early church was like and how integrated the church was, um, the intersection of of Jews and Gentiles and immigrants in a metropolis of a city. And and there's a lot of information about gender and leadership in the church. And it will help people like me and you um, understand um, what it means to be a leader in a church. And hopefully those of you who are watching might learn a thing or two as well. Um, Margo, I, I know you're moving towards ordination now, which we're really excited about here at Selwyn. I'm just curious before we read the text, um, when you knew you wanted to be a leader in the church? Yeah, I think that's, I think for all people who seek leadership in ministry, it's, it's typically not like a one big moment thing, but it probably started when I was a kid. I was always that person to volunteer, to read scripture and worship and would sing super loud in the children's choir. Uh, church was just a place where I could be known and be myself and, um, and, and embraced in that way. But for me in particular, it was my junior year of college. I'd actually left the church for a while as I was dealing with some grief um, and just needed some some space and to find myself and to figure out really what being a person of faith meant to me. Why did I go to church? Was it just routine? Um, and after some time away from the church, two or three years, um, I found myself in a position of not just deep longing and missing for that community, um, but missing um, being in conversation about um, the beauty and the hardness of life and, and faith. And, um, and so I started going to a church where I was at in college. And, um, and I actually, it was the first church that I went to where um, the majority of the staff was female, actually. And, um, and I think it was, I owe those women a lot because um, I think they naturally saw curiosity in, in me and maybe even saw my calling before I was able to fully acknowledge it and put it into words. Um, but that's when I was first able to see the diversity of what working in a church can be and um, what, you know, the diversity of, of people who do that kind of work. Yeah. I think I was in my 
20s before I heard a woman preach. And it, it didn't shock me. It seemed normal enough. I mean, certainly, um, certainly I was curious about her voice and how she stood in the pulpit, but it, it, it did influence me in terms of eventually understanding that uh, I didn't grow up with hearing somebody talk about God who sounded like me in any sort of way, you know, and I think we could chase that all the way back to our understanding of who God is um, as we think about uh, the restrictions of gender, you know, so let's get into this. We're just going to, you all are going to hear me butcher the 16th uh, chapter of the book of Romans um, in, in sorry, um, there are a lot of names that I'm going to struggle with, but I need you to listen up. Let's hear what we can hear. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Centure, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila who work with me in Christ Jesus and who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epanatus, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They were prominent among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Amplitius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus and our co-worker in Christ and my beloved Statius. Greet Apelles, who, was, who is approved by Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my relative, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophania and Trophosa. Greet the beloved, beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and greet his mother, a mother to me also. Greet Asyncritus, Felagon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philogus. <laughs> Philologus, Julia, Nersus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. (laughs) Those are names I cannot say. Paul's name dropping. Paul is totally name dropping and networking, Margot, because this was a letter written to a church community that he had never visited before. And as I understand it, um, he had just wrapped up his business in the East. So he had done some big missionary work in the East and he's preparing the way um, to make this visit to Rome. And he mentions at least five different house churches. And um, if you remember last week, we were talking about the situation in Rome because there's so much diversity. There's a lot of Jewish 
uh, Christians and a lot of Gentile Christians, and they aren't exactly seeing eye to eye in what it means to live out their faith together. And so he's name dropping. He has 28 names in this one chapter, and he's trying to establish um, his, his knowledge of the people that are with him. And one more thing I'll share before we get into some of these names is if you will remember in the year 49, um, Claudius, the Roman empire had kicked out all the Jews of Rome. So it didn't matter if you were a, a Jewish person practiced Judaism, or if you were a Jewish person practicing Christianity, they were all booted. And so presumably those people had moved out into other areas um, and could have come into contact with Paul wherever they were. So he is sending this, this big letter, the entire book of Rome, of Romans, um, to these people, and he's making sure they understand he knows who they are. So what else strikes you about, about this laundry list, though? Well, I think it's easy to get caught up in all the obscure names that are a little bit hard for us to talk about, but there's a bunch of names in here that stick out because they're not people that you hear about a lot in the Bible. Right. And, and half of them are, are women. And I'm going to mention just three of them in the short time that we have, just, just so folks can take a minute and consider the impact the, these, these particular women have had on the early church and maybe ask yourself, well, why don't we hear a lot about them and perhaps why have they been written out of the narrative between when they serve the church in 2021. The first one is Phoebe, who, who is the first Christian name mentioned in the church. Uh, Phoebe was a deacon in the church and she presumably was the one carrying the letter to the Roman church, which meant a couple things. Like, first of all, um, Paul trusted her like implicitly, right? Um, not only was she the courier of the letter and was she a deacon, but she was a benefactor, which, which meant that she was relied upon in like substantial ways for leadership. And what's curious is that in some versions of the Bible, that word benefactor is changed to another word helper, mm. you know, which has different implications for us than, than the Greek word um, benefactor, which um, means to stand up or to stand before versus being a helper. Yeah, it's really different. Yeah. The second name I'll just mention is Prissa. So Prissa and her husband Aquila um, were like husband and wife and they were missionaries, and they were like the movers and shakers of the early church all over the region, not just in, in Rome. So they had been in Rome before everyone was exiled, and then they went to Italy, Greece, Turkey, well, Asia Minor, which is Turkey now, um, Ephesus, and Corinth, and they, they were folks that would go and pave the way for early churches to be formed. Um, and they were profound teachers. Prissa was a teacher's teacher and everyone knew that about her. So the re why, you know, he would name drop these two so that, that Rome would understand that what was happening there was, you know, would meant something. The last one, which I think is the most exciting is Junia. How many apostles do you know that were women or have you heard about before? 
I mean, junior, but other than that, none. We, yeah, you we went to seminary. About, yeah. yeah. But no, I mean, I think in all, you know, think about like big cathedrals you've been into before, right? Where they typically have stained glass or carvings of the apostles. Or I worked in a church once where they had a chair for each apostle in the front of the sanctuary. Junia didn't have a chair. <laughs> I can say that for sure. Right. Like, I mean, to be an apostle, I think the criteria, according to Paul, who called himself an apostle and a couple of times had to defend his apostleship, um, was that you had to have an encounter with the living Christ. Um, and you had to have shown some sort of commitment of, of suffering and laboring in Christ's name or for the gospel. And there needed to be fruit for that labor, right? Like that's the criteria. Um, you didn't just have to be a disciple, but um, Junia and his, presumably her husband or her partner um, were said to have been prominent amongst the apostles. And that wasn't really a problem for the early church until the 13th century. And so, so all of the early church fathers and writers of the establishers of the early church had no problem with Junia being a lady until an archbishop in the 13th century decided that that would be a problem. So then they just put an S on the end of the name and Junia became Junius, you know? So like, instead of, they couldn't really deal with the, the word apostle. So they just dealt with her name and Martin Luther liked that idea. And then the printing press came along in 1522 and then Bibles from there on out, just had Junius and Andronicus, like these two dudes, which I have a major <laughs> problem with. That's good. I think a lot of people don't know that. <laughs> no, I didn't know that. I just skipped the entire chapter. But, you know, when I'm teaching confirmation and half the class are, are girls, um, they want to know where they stand, like where are they represented in the early church? Why, why do people skip major portions of Paul's epistles? Because they don't all, always um, make it easy for women to understand their place in church. You know, not only that, these, some of these texts have been misappropriated for, for the abuse of women or for the oppressive, you know, the oppressive nature of, of how some churches can operate. Yeah. Or I think a lot about what these three women and the other women that we're not diving in so deep um, today, what that means for us and for the church um, right now. I think that um, it probably means a little bit something different for Selwyn, right? Selwyn's had females in leadership for a long time. They're actually kind of known for that within our denomination. Mm -hmm. um, but I've got a really interesting story because I think a lot of times it's important for us to think about what this might mean for communities also outside of our own. Yeah. Um, so when I was in seminary, I was given this opportunity to um, travel to Europe and do some preaching in some really, really small European towns. So I was in a really small town in Hungary called Yarmi. <laughs> and this is where they grew fruit to make like palinka liquor, like plum liquor. That's like all this town was known for. 
Um, and I was going to drink some of the liquor. Yeah, it was good. They uh, drink it every morning before you brush your teeth to warm yourself up. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was, it was a lot, (laughs) but it was, um, this really important part in my ministry because I was going into these small churches one Sunday and I was dual preaching in the sense that I was preaching. And then I had a Hungarian man translating my English into Hungarian. And we were standing in a pulpit together. And you were both in the same pulpit, same pulpit. It was tied up there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And this, I walked in on this Sunday thinking nothing of it. I had done a fair bit of preaching in college and in seminary and um, was really shocked when I saw a young woman in one of the back pews pull out an ancient camera recorder <laughs> and start filming me. And it wasn't until the worship service was over that my preaching professor said, I don't think you realized this. Cause I was like, Oh, how, how cute that, you know, like they pulled out the camera cord and she said, Margo, I don't think you realize that no one in this town has probably ever actually never <laughs> seen a woman in a pulpit before, let alone then seeing a man stand beside her translating for her. Yeah, um, it been radical. It was, it was unbelievable. And Um, you know, I grew up in the PCUSA, so female leadership is not something that was ever abnormal for me growing up. I saw it more in some churches than others, but this was like this huge moment for me where I was like, wow, it's not all like that. It it isn't all like that, but you know, I will, I will say that the, the norms of leaderships, you know, of male leadership still perpetuate the the system at large. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Like, I, I think that for example, this is actually a really cute story. The, the other day there was a tornado watch, you know, here in Charlotte. I don't, I don't know if you were at the church that day, but um, at Selwyn, we have uh, over a hundred children in our child development center under the age of five. So when a tornado watch comes through town, all the children um, have to be brought into safe spaces, which are hallways. And you can imagine what it's like to have a hundred children uh, and <laughs> toddlers in one hallway. So the, the program staff and, you know, and, and um, our church administrator and our office assistant, we all go down there. And by the end of 40 minutes, we're all holding a baby, you know? Um, so I'm holding a baby. And one of the cute four-year-olds um, pointed at me and she said, um, what's your name? And I told her my name and she said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm the minister. And she said, you are not the minister. And I said, (laughs) I am too the minister. She's well, what do you do? And I was like, well, I preach and I teach and I visit people. She said, you are not the minister. And she pointed to Lawson, who is our office and our office assistant um, and an amazing playwright in his real job um, and said, he's the minister. <laughs> and she wouldn't believe me. We, we went back and forth and finally she had to seek a second opinion from, um, from one of her teachers, but she's four, you know? And so I'm hoping that I'm hoping we're working against, um, whatever that's about. And I think it's important for us to read things like Romans 16, even though we can't say their names. Um, if we can, 
if we can list the people who have formed us and given us an understanding of what it means to love God in Christ. And if some of those people um, can represent us in whatever, whatever that looks like, um, whether it's gender um, or, or race or age or sexuality or whatever it is, I, I think we better find those places in the Bible and lift them up and honor those people the best we can. I guess before we close, if you were to think about something between now and, and Sunday, which is Mother's Day, um, who's on your list? If you needed to make a list, um, if you're going to name drop <laughs> in terms of your faith formation, um, who, who are those people that have done, done the work of Christ on your behalf? Love to close us in prayer. All right, let's pray. Holy and gracious God, on this week, we give you thanks for Romans 16, for names that are often forgotten and written out and added extra letters. We give you thanks for the people in our lives who love and support and nourish and cherish us. This week in particular, we think about those women as we celebrate Mother's Day. God, we give you thanks for these women who stood strong in the faith and shared your word with those so that the new church could be the new church. And we're grateful this week that we get to see these names and see these stories lived into a new way as we come back together. God, this week we celebrate our graduating seniors in worship. We pray for them and their families as they start new journeys. We ask that you be with them and let them know that they are loved and that you'll be with them as they go on to their next adventures. God, bring our community back together so that we can worship on Sunday. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Margo, for enduring my reading of Romans 16, and we'll see you all soon. Bye.